You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When a 19-year-old college student says that she's neither a liberal nor a conservative, I never know quite where the conversation will go next. Will this be one of the elusive swing voters who really could take on new principles when the next election rolls around? A newly minted college libertarian? Someone so tired of cable television news that apolitical sounds like a refuge rather than a failure to read Aristotle? On the other hand, when a book says right on the cover that, quote, liberalism failed, unquote, I'm readying myself for a screed from a partisan, and honestly, I'm bracing myself for the worst. Happily, Patrick Deneen's new book, Why Liberalism Failed, is neither sophomoric nor shrill, but it's a philosophical exploration of some of the ideas that give us the political scene that we've got right now. And Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to have Dr. Deneen on the show to talk through its main claims. Thank you for coming on, the, on Christian Humanist Profiles, Patrick. Thanks very much for having me. Well, this is a book whose core argument has to do with drifting and shifting meanings of ultimate terms, and the title starts that game before the first inning even starts. So, in your book, what does the word liberalism mean, and how does that differ from the ways that AM radio and cable television news use that term? Right. I'm always afraid that when people see my book or its title, they'll think it's, uh, I think as you're suggesting, it's... uh, Yet another contribution uh, to the uh, uh, to the debates between uh, the right wing and the left wing, uh, when in fact I have more or less everybody in my in my target. Uh, by liberal or liberalism, I mean a a a, a long-standing, in the first case, a long-standing philosophical view that eventually became a political order, uh, and particularly the American political order. Uh, the, the, the long-standing philosophical tradition has its roots all the way back into the Enlightenment with thinkers like uh, John Locke and the uh, social contract tradition, thinkers like Immanuel Kant uh, and uh, David Hume, a number of thinkers that essentially uh, redefine the understanding of what liberty is, that liberty is the uh, has as its aim and goal the, 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 as thoroughgoing a liberation of the individual – from any defining external claims or ties that uh, might in some ways limit our experience of freedom to act as uh, in accordance with our desires. Uh, and so uh, the liberal political order, while we think of it today in terms of left versus right, um, understanding liberalism in this way, as I'm describing, um, really uh, is in some ways a a deeper shared philosophy of more or less everyone in our political system. Yeah, and I mean, I'm reminded of, um, and again, you know, my my C.S. Lewis and my uh, G.K. Chesterton tend to blend together on this, but essays that both of those men have written that say that so much of what we take to be the grand divisions of our own moment, of course, they're talking about a moment 80 years in the past, uh, would have been... uh, basically common ground and, you know, radically unfamiliar to someone 800 years ago. I mean, is that the kind of division you're talking about? Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, It's always a little bit of a shock, I think, to my students when we encounter an argument in something like Plato's Republic, a text I usually try to assign every year uh, in my classes. As do I. Right. And at the very end, as you you know well, at the very end of the Republic, uh, uh, Socrates argues uh, that uh, 
essentially liberty, as I just defined it, the idea of freedom to act in accordance with your desires with the greatest possible freedom from external obstacles, uh, Socrates suggests that's a condition of servitude or even slavery. He argues that to be governed by our desires, uh, in a sense, or to act in accordance with our desires without a kind of sense of command and discipline over the lower part of our nature is to be in a condition of slavery, whereas to be able in some ways to act in accordance with the higher part of our nature, uh, the uh, what he points to as the virtuous life, a life lived according to virtue, is the condition of freedom, where we limit our choices in a sense uh, in keeping with the higher part, uh, the best part of our of our nature. And that's always a shock because whether our, whether my students are liberals or conservatives, so-called, uh, they all define freedom to a person uh, as, the, as the liberty to do as one wishes. Uh, and that's a real revelation to them to come across an argument that says, basically, you're a slave. You're a slave to uh, the kind of passions, uh, and uh, those will drive you forever if you can't master them. Right. And what's interesting in my context, I teach in a small evangelical college, is uh, students on a sort of spiritual devotional level will basically agree with that, that you can be a slave to yourself, a slave to sin, as St. Paul says. Uh, but then when you suggest that you know someone might... Uh, draft constitutions based on that conviction. I mean, that just seems tyrannical to them. Uh, when in fact, as you said, I mean, precisely the opposite of that, you know, the state of being where desires run amok is Plato's definition of tyranny. Yeah, that's right. And in, in fact, he says uh, at the conclusion of the Republic, uh, that it's the that to in a sense to lead the life um, as what we now think of as a free person is essentially to lead the life of what a tyrant would want to live, uh, but this is a life of profound unhappiness, uh, a, a condition of never being able to be satiated, uh, of being able to fulfill your desires, and uh, you know I when I look around at the kind of spiritual desiccation of our contemporary culture, I sort of think, you know, Plato was on to something there. Uh, we are, um, we're supposed to be happy, uh, but in so many respects, we are uh, in such throes of extreme unhappiness that we are, uh, you know, broadly speaking, uh, in a profound crisis of self-medication of enormous proportions of mm -hmm. sort of narcotizing ourselves in the midst of this kind of, uh, this condition of precisely what I think Socrates suggests will be a condition uh, of a deep servitude to uh, that to which we shouldn't be subject. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just got done teaching Plato's Gorgias two hours ago, so I'm going to resist the temptation to turn this into a Plato conversation. I do want to talk about your book. One move that your book makes is to talk about, you know, contemporary liberalism. And, you know, our listeners know now that we mean, broadly speaking, modern political life. Not into, it doesn't divide it into conservatives and liberals, but into, and I'm paraphrasing your term, terminology here, into first wave liberals and, and second wave liberals. The first wave being sort of economic liberals, and the second wave extending that into the realm of human nature. So, I mean, this basically is the division that we're more familiar with. But when we reframe it and make those both liberalisms, to use a, an awkward plural, what kinds of common ground between those two positions become more evident? Uh, of course, there are important differences, and I wouldn't want to deny those differences. We, mm -hmm. live with those, we, live, we live those every day in our political debates. 
But from the perspective that we've just been talking about, these tend to be debates more over means than over ends. Uh, these tend to be debates over how, how can we best achieve this condition of experiencing ourselves as free individuals who are capable of potentially limitless choices. Uh, for the first wave liberals, uh, you know, here we can think of uh, the, the heirs of, of John Locke and the, the founding fathers of America, the those who made the Constitution. Uh, it tends to be the rights of property and the marketplace, uh, the freedom to exercise individual choice in that context. That's the, the best venue in which we can uh, experience and indeed expand the possibilities of our experience and indeed our um, abilities to make ourselves more free, more liberated from any particular kind of constraint on our choices. The more the market expands, right, first regionally and then nationally and now globally, the more choices we have, the more things we can become, the more choice we have about where to live. And indeed today, what kind of human being we want to be, whether we want to be a man or a woman or something altogether different. This is in some ways we could say the great claim of liberty that the market makes uh, to us. Mm -hmm. The second wave of liberalism was a kind of response to what was seen as the limitations of this model, which was more statist, of course. And it viewed, uh, it didn't reject the idea of liberty ultimately as the aim and goal of human life, but it believed that it would be better affected through the ends of the state, that the state uh, was the best mechanism for achieving a kind of ultimate liberation from, again, any particular kind of uh, limiting, defining aspect of our lives. Now, it aimed to do this through a greater equalization of, among other things, property, but toward the end of allowing everybody the possibility of experiencing this form of liberty. So it's a kind of, again, a kind of paradox that there would be less political liberty, or at least economic liberty, mm -hmm. uh, in order to allow for every person to enjoy what, for instance, someone like John Dewey would call our individuality, our true individuality. But the aim ultimately was the liberation of the individual now through the mechanism of the state. And let me give you a really, I think, a nice illustration of this. Uh, if, if you remember back uh, to the re-election campaign of President Obama, uh, he had briefly, his campaign, uh, promoted an advertisement called The Life of Julia. And Julia was portrayed as this woman who from the very youngest age, from, the, from a school child until uh, the age of retirement, was taken care of by a host of government programs in which she never had to rely on any other human being in order to achieve her success in life, that, that it was the state and its various policies that allowed her, in a sense, to live her life without ever having to rely on any particular human being. Uh, there's one slide in which she has a child. We don't know where this child came from. And the child disappears on a school bus and never reappears again. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but what we see is that Julia is able to experience a life of complete autonomy, of freedom from any reliance on any other human being through the auspices of the state. And so in this sense, I see the, what, what I describe as the first wave of liberalism. It's kind of classical manifestation. And the second wave of liberalism, its progressive manifestation, has really two sides of the same coin in which we're locked in an endless battle over the means, but really fundamentally agree on the ends of what we're attempting to achieve. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me, I, I interviewed Rod Dreher several months ago about the Benedict Option, and this book and that one have certain common grounds. They're certainly not identical. 
Uh, but your discussion of the American Civil War really made me think about this because so often the narratives, whether it be the lost cause narratives that you hear from certain American, you know, classical liberals, to use your terms, or the sort of one-dimensional moral struggle narrative that you hear from progressive liberals, um, it, they all kind of fail to see that what takes place or what, you know, uh, what seizes the day in 1865 is a different kind of state market cooperation, but it's still a state market cooperation. So I want you to take a few minutes because your discussion of the Civil War really got me asking some interesting questions. Talk about how both sides of that Civil War, and more importantly, the ways that we tell the story of the Civil War, both manifest this more modern notion of liberty that you're talking about. Right. So, you know, in some ways, we're, we'll, perhaps, I mean, America will be stained always uh, with the tragedy of chattel slavery mm -hmm. and legacy of the Civil War. And even now today, to try to speak in a in a way that evaluates uh, that that period and, and that uh, that even might move in the direction of raising questions or challenging some of the outcomes of that of that conflict uh, is is quickly condemned as being some ways uh, uh, you know, reactionary or or nostalgic uh, or sympathizing with the um, uh, with the southern form of life at the time. And I, when I, I think it's a very brief moment in the book, as I recall, uh, mm. and I, I don't dwell on it for very long. But what, what I really try to point out is that in the aftermath of the Civil War, you really do have a rise of, in some ways, the kind of the realization of this state market partnership, you could say, uh, that really um, energetically undertakes the mission of creating now a national project of the liberation of people from any particular sort of happenstance of their birth or their inheritance or any sense of identity that they might not have uh, individually chosen, right? So at, at the root, at the root of what liberalism is, we could say it has the vision of the human being in the, in the state of nature, right? In this idea of the state of nature that we're by nature we are free and equal and independent and autonomous individual selves who make choices about every aspect of our lives. We are not bound by any definition of who we are as a result of history or as a result of geography or as a result of a birthright. That's the that's the vision of human nature in the state of nature. But of course we know that that's not really true. That's not how human beings are come into the world. It's not how we experience ourselves. Uh, when we come into the world, we know we're born to particular people, particular parents who have particular histories. Most of us, in fact, I'd say all of us are born into a place uh, and experience our lives in those places as young people and have some effect, affection often or affinity or maybe sometimes hatred of those places, but we're not indifferent usually. Uh, and we perhaps ask questions like, where did I come from and where did my grandparents come from? And we want to know stories about our histories. Mm -hmm. uh, but after the Civil War, you could say a gigantic project that was already incipient, it was already beginning at the beginning of the American uh, founding, but a gigantic project of allowing and indeed encouraging people increasingly to experience themselves as self-making creatures, 
that now exist in a global, first a national system, and then increasingly an international system, a global system that's constituted entirely by our own individual choice. What, what place we will have in it, what role we will play in it, how we will conceive of ourselves in that system. That project really gets, gets its um, energy uh, following the Civil War. And you see the, the state's efforts now to create a national transportation system through the railroad and a national market um, to align people's allegiances increasingly with the nation state as opposed to more local places or local traditions. The creation of what in the book I call an anti-culture, the mm -hmm. absence, the absence of a single culture uh, or the absence of a local culture in preference for, in some ways, a kind of um, a, a experience of placelessness and historylessness. So I, I view the, the conclusion of the Civil War as in some ways, uh, let's, let's say at least a, a bittersweet conclusion, because on the one hand, it liberates people who never should have been enslaved. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it begins a process in which today we find ourselves feeling powerless in relationship to the forces that were unleashed following the conclusion of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. I want to pick up on that word anti-culture, because that is something that uh, you spend some time on. And it might, again, strike our listeners as, as counterintuitive, because when we think about you know modern progressive liberalism, often the word multiculturalism comes right along with it. So, you know, talk, talk to our listeners a little bit about your case that, you know, this global liberalism, you know, actually ends up giving us less culture rather than more culture. Yeah. So the, the, the term multiculturalism, I think, was always in some ways a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, if, you, if I can use that phrase. Uh, it was an, it was more it was less multiculturalism than anti-culturalism. Uh, it, it, uh, it was an effort, uh, at least within the university setting and maybe more broadly, to encourage in the first instance a detachment of people from whatever culture they had. I mean, if you think about it, this was a big thing in universities in the 1980s, 1990s, that students will be brought into a university who perhaps came from a variety of different cultures and diff different cultural backgrounds. And what they were told was that your culture is just one particular culture, one culture of many cultures, uh, and that you have to begin with a preliminary belief that all cultures are equal and appreciate all cultures as having laying a claim for the allegiance of any particular person. But now we have to see what happens as a result of that. It means that you identify yourself not first and foremost as a member of a culture. You identify yourself first and foremost as a multiculturalist, which is mm -hmm. to say a non-culture person without a culture, or at least a person who's been detached psychically from one's own culture. You don't begin with a deep sense that I come from a culture and I encounter other cultures and we make claims and contestations. It was rather to say we should not contest at all and agree that in some ways we should be indifferent to the mm. claims of culture. So um, the universities, as is so often the case, were places where you were beginning to shape the new ruling class, uh, the new elite. And our new elite, we could say, is defined by, and indeed it's one of its main features, is to be comfortable uh, and in fact, to seek to extend this anti-culture, uh, a kind of experience of placelessness, of not having any particular history that defines us, 
and of in some ways um, sort of swimming above uh, the kind of the cultural um, practices and norms and traditions that might once have defined much of how we understood ourselves as human beings uh, and are are significantly this ruling, this new ruling class is significantly significantly involved in, in certain ways disassembling cultures wherever they find them, uh, mm. in, in rendering them uh, into basically uh, restaurants and museums and you know things that we can look at, but we no longer inhabit. Uh, and, and, and that are consumer goods in some sense. Absolutely. I mean, the the in some ways the the more culture has been eviscerated, the more sort of culture goods you'll find on the shelves of Walmart and, uh, and Target. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of that uh, idiotic, and I, I'm thinking it's Victorian-era poem about the blind men and the elephant, uh, you know, that one thought that he had a tree because he grabbed a leg, and one thought that he had a snake because he grabbed the tail, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I mean, anyone who's taken Philosophy 101 can say, all right, well, doesn't the poet presume to speak from a place above all of the blind men? Can't the poet see? I mean, I, that, that strikes me as, you know, the, the critique of multiculturalism here. I mean, it presumes that it has the privileged view on what parts of culture are valid and which ones are invalid. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, what's striking is at the very same time you had arguments of multiculturalism, institutions, educational institutions, for example, were eliminating language requirements. Mm-hmm. If you're serious about culture, you you have to be embedded in the language and the form of thinking of another culture. True multiculturalists can't be, you know, uh, can't in some ways inhabit every culture. You might be able to inhabit another culture or at least right. appreciate another culture. But that's a deep submersion uh, in those cultures. So multiculturalism is exactly that. It was always sort of floating above any particular, particular cultural claim, but I think with a particular object and end, which was precisely to advance this liberal project that I'm describing that requires detachment of cultures and requires the elimination, ultimately, uh, not necessarily through uh, violence, but through a kind of indifference uh, that requires mm-hmm. a kind of indifference uh, toward culture. And this is one of the ways we experience ourselves as those creatures in the state of nature, right? What's one of the defining features of the state of nature? It's a place without a culture, mm-hmm. a place without a history. It's a place without a place. Uh, it is free-floating in which we're just individuals detached from each other. Right, right. You've already said language learning, but I, wanna, I want to uh, hear you for a little bit more on that. I mean, Given that multiculturalism is an anti-cultural approach to difference, uh, I mean, you know, you are a professor at a Catholic university, I a professor at a Protestant liberal arts college. What would be some good approaches to genuine cultural difference? Well, so now we've replaced the language of multiculturalism with the language of diversity, and diversity Mm -hmm. Now tends to mean people from different ethnic uh, backgrounds, as well as, I mean, increasingly sexual orientations and so forth. But what's what's striking about that? Is what when the when you see the insistence on diver- diversity, just like you saw the insistence on multiculturalism, it means inevitably that your institution is starting to look more and more like every other institution, right? The more the more that institutions of higher education, for instance, insist on the centrality of diversity 
the more they are making themselves completely identical to every other institution out there, right? That, that it's very difficult now to tell any difference between most schools now that have adopted the ethic of diversity or multiculturalism. I, I would say that if we really cared about multiculturalism, if we really cared about diversity, we would want to see an explosion of differing institutions with mm. different traditions and differing kinds of commitments that we don't have to have identical and standardized institutions of learning that a Catholic university like Notre Dame should have a profoundly and deeply informed formation in the Catholic tradition. And it means that we should have a deep and profound emphasis upon theological and philosophical training of our students and informed by the Catholic anthropology of the theory of human nature understood through reason and revelation and an immersion in the literature, the great literature and uh, the great works, uh, the likes of Dante uh, and uh, Shakespeare and so forth. Uh, do we have that now? No. Uh, we, you know, more and more of our institutions are saying that we have to mimic our aspirational peers. And to speak again of the market, we have a marketplace of the professoriate and a marketplace of students that we all want, in a sense, to poach from and end up looking the same as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So what would it require then to have the kind of cultural diversity that you're speaking of? It would mean the willingness to really be distinct and to um, uh, develop cultural practices and traditions and self-understanding that doesn't have to conform to some standardized or homogenized set of liberal norms. But most of our institutions of higher learning today are terribly afraid to be distinct in that way. And as a result, our students are identical, you know, and the kind of world they're helping to create is increasingly standardized and homogenized. Mm -hmm. Well, one element of that uh, that, you know, you spend not a whole lot of time, but I, I thought it was an interesting passage talking about is the, uh, well, I mean, the, the rise and the standardization of the campus sex code, uh, regulating students' sex lives not through education, as you write about, as it might have been done in previous days, but through threats of punishments. And the connection that I thought was interesting is that you say that this is an enactment of Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes, uh, not a connection that I would have anticipated. So tell our listeners a little bit about that Hobbes and the campus sex code connection. I, I use that example actually in the chapter on anti-culture as, mm -hmm. as, as an attempt to um, exemplify what I'm talking about. So one of the deep, you could say one of the deepest forms in which culture manifests itself is assist, it's especially assisting human beings through times of profound transition in the course of a lifespan. So if you think about what are, where do you see a lot of cultural practices, even today in some remnant form, it's around the time of birth and all of the kinds of traditions that we have to welcome in new life uh, and to celebrate new life. It's at times of coming of age, right? That fraught and difficult time where you have to uh, deal with the, the, the burgeoning sexuality of, of, of a young person. It's at the time of marriage, marriage filled with ceremonies uh, and, and practices and traditions of the coming together of a man and a woman to form new family. And, of course, the time of death and burial, uh, one time of, of memory, of remembrance, and hope of, of eternal life. So 
culture, you know, whatever the culture is, it's almost inevitable that it will have various practices that will attempt to assist human beings through these often difficult, often celebratory, sometimes mournful periods of transition in the human life. And one of the things that's striking about um, uh, especially the coming of age is that what, what we've decided as a civilization is that we're going to more or less strip away all of those cultural practices and norms when it comes to the coming of age of young people. Because the one way that we experience our true liberation as these autonomous individual selves is through our activity to freely enact and act upon our sexual desires. It goes back to Plato, right? Uh, that uh, the limit on our desire to do with our bodies what we want is like the ground condition of what it is to be unfree. And so you had, in an earlier time, you had a lot of sort of norms. They weren't necessarily legislated. They were norms that were widely understood. You could say they were forms of courtship. Uh, yeah, they were often patrolled by adults, but they were also sort of deeply embedded within a set of cultural practices. And they, were, um, they weren't surprises uh, to, the young, to the young people. These were expected parts of what it was to come of age. And in the name of liberating people, Ron, you know, could say this was part of the 1960s, but has a longer set of roots. Mm -hmm. In the name of liberating young people from these constraints, we said there, is, there are no more expectations for how you behave. You just have to, you just have, to have consent. Right. Consent is the only basis on which we will know uh, that this whatever act you want to commit or acts you want to undertake are legitimate. That's that's a truly liberal standard. Right. Liberalism is based on the theory of consent. The problem is, is that we have really, as we know now today, it's really difficult to know what consent is and when someone is consenting, especially in this very difficult and fraught area. And so now in place of those cultural norms, that had existed around courtship and coming of age, increasingly you see the state and law and legal mechanisms moving in now to patrol liberated free autonomous individuals who may have misconstrued what consent is uh, and now have to govern these free individuals through the kind of the heavy hand of the state. So we got rid of in loco parentis in the universities, and we replaced it now increasingly with state structures. And this is a very, and this is what I conclude is a very Hobbesian move. It's to, in some ways, kind of say we're only free if we're in the state of nature. And having now created the state of nature in our dormitories and on parties uh, off campus, we now have to have the Leviathan come in and sort things out. Are we freer now as a result? Uh, I would say that I certainly don't think we have achieved uh, any kind of signal form of freedom when uh, the sexual activity of our students is now so wanton and so ungoverned uh, that we now have to have the federal government stepping in uh, to enact limitations or at least punishments uh, when uh, its activities are deemed to be uh, unfree or to have been undertaken without consent. Mm -hmm. And listeners, I want you to hear this because the narrative that Patrick just sketched out is we create a condition uh, in which there is a need for the government, and then you know the government comes along and says, "Ah, a need, I should come and meet it." Uh, it's very similar to uh, you know William T. Kavanaugh's narrative of the rise of the nation state in his book. Uh, oh, what is the name of that book? Uh, Torture and Eucharist is one of them. I forget what the other one is. The myth of uh, the myth of religious violence. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, terrific book. 
but it's also reminiscent of what you, Patrick, write about when it comes to technology. I, I'm one of these people, and perhaps it's you know some latent Marxist streak in me, I don't know, uh, that thinks of material conditions as giving rise to ideas rather than vice versa. But you make a pretty good argument here that really the changes that make smartphones and social networking and things like that, interstate highways, intelligible, are political changes first, and then the technology comes along later to fit the political contours. Uh, so let me ask you this. I mean, in what way are those technologies, cars and phones and other such intruders, political phenomena before they become technological? Yeah, um, in, in a sense, I think I would say that um, politics itself is technological. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, that is to say, uh, my understanding. So I'm again, I'm hearkening back to my uh, my uh, uh, education in part as a student of Greek philosophy and, and the Greek language. But the word techne means basically a kind of a human, uh, something that human beings make, mm -hmm. uh, an artifice, uh, something that we create as opposed to something that's created by nature. Uh, and we could say that politics is a technique. Politics is a kind of technology. We don't think about it in those terms, but it is. Our constitution is a kind of technology. And this liberal order uh, that I'm describing is itself a kind of technology. And so as, as you as you suggest, uh, uh, what I argue is that the kind of technology in the way we usually think of it, the kind of technology that we will be attracted to adopt will reflect the deepest commitments that we bring at having been shaped by the deeper sort of political technology that we happen to live in. And all that comes with it, not merely political in the narrow sense, but the theory of human nature and the theory of society that is then instantiated in reality. And so one of the things that I try to point out is that the, it's not merely the technology that we adopt, but in many ways how we will use it uh, will be directed by, or at least influenced, deeply influenced by, uh, those deeper commitments as a result of our political philosophy. Uh, so I, I suggest on the one hand you have in contemporary world, we use technology quite often to achieve a kind of distance from others, uh, to, I realize we connect through social media, but, but the connection of social media is often the result of the absence of actual physical connection. Um, mm -hmm. My daughter, I'm always fighting with my daughter now because uh, she says she's communicating with her friends over her phone. And I say, why don't you get together with them like we used to do, play in the backyard and said, Dad, kids don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, that to me is not connection, uh, at least not as I understand it. Um, it's a kind of connection, but it's also a way to create a kind of distance. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, in, the, in the chapter, I contrast the way in which we could say our technology seeks to allow us, again, this experience of ourselves as autonomous, free, and unconnected individuals with a different kind of technology that we might see in a different kind of philosophical, anthropological setting. And I use the example of the old order Amish, which is probably an obvious one, but not, not the way you usually think of it. You usually think, oh, horse horse buggies and the like. Um, I use the example of um, the way in which they create a system of insurance as a counterpoint. So insurance is a kind of technology, something mm -hmm. we make. Uh, and we create insurance so that we 
we create pools of funds uh, that are anonymous and faceless so that if something happens to us, we go to our broker or to the insurance company and ask for – we make a claim and then some portion of that pool is paid out for us uh, to, uh, uh, to help recompense for our loss. The old order Amish ban this form of insurance because they regard it as destructive of their community. And rather, if something, uh, something occurs that results in a, some form of damage or loss in that community, it's the responsibility of everyone in that community to attempt to make that person whole. That is to say, we have direct obligations to each other that are um, in many ways uh, avoided and um, circumvented through our form of insurance. So that's, a, that's one way you could say these are two different technologies. They serve the same purpose uh, to attempt to make people whole, but with very different ends in mind uh, and with very different goals ultimately. Our technology, for example, insurance, is one that seeks to allow us not to be reliant upon and not to have to be grateful toward any particular person. And that's a kind of core feature of a liberal society. Mm -hmm. Now, we've mentioned Plato's Republic a couple times in passing here, and I, I sense a couple times in this book that you're playing Thrasymachus, uh, most notably when you present your critique of meritocracy as an economic system, uh, and you present it as most enthusiastically championed by its most likely winners. I mean, that's straight out of book one of the Republic. So many of our listeners are going to assume that any kind of political system is going to have its big winners and its big losers. But your argument seems to be that liberalism makes the winning bigger and the losing bigger in certain intelligible and perhaps more importantly, in certain avoidable ways. So talk about how liberalism differs from its medieval counterparts in terms of winning and losing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, almost certainly unavoidable that any political and economic system is going to produce certain people are going to have more advantages over other people who have fewer advantages. Uh, even the system of government and economics that was supposed to produce perfect equality, you know, Soviet communism, it turns out that some of those people owned dachas uh, and did pretty well for themselves. So it seems to be built into the human condition uh, that some of us will, will end up doing better than others. Um, I, I find the liberal ordering, uh, you're, you're quite right, I find it to be particularly pernicious, and I think for two main reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, to go back to something I was saying earlier, that the creation of this anti-culture, this placeless, historyless, um, uh, contextless, um, uh, kind of broadly condition that that uh, is one of the creatures of the liberal order, is designed and is in some ways perpetuated to advantage a relatively small number of people who thrive in such conditions. I would say that it's a fairly fairly exceptional um, human being that thrives as a placeless, historyless, um, and uh, um, kind of someone who sort of floats above uh, the, the kind of the deeper forms of relationality. And when we look at lots of measures today of sort of winners and losers in our economic system, it's not just that some people are richer and some people are poorer. It's that the richer people now increasingly are able to lead good lives um, in all areas of life. They're able to make families and they're able to maintain 
sort of stable lives and to avoid drugs and uh, destructive, at least destructive forms of addiction uh, uh, of drugs and criminality and so forth. Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, documents this extremely well. Whereas those who are losing in the economic system aren't just not making as much money, which because that's always sort of true. They're experiencing extensive sort of social decimation. Their families are in a catastrophe. Uh, they can't hold together marriages. Their children are increasingly born out of wedlock. Levels of abortion and uh, out-of-wedlock birth are skyrocketing. Drug use is rampant, as we know from discussions of the opiate crisis. Uh, the ability to form stable communities has been almost entirely lost. And I regard this as the very success of the creation of an anti-culture, that in the condition of now eliminating sort of cultural norms and practices, some people have done very well. They tend to live in the nice, shiny cities in the Northeast, on the West Coast, in London, and some people are doing extremely poorly. And yet, and here's the second part, which I find it particularly pernicious, the people who are doing very well feel the most justified in their commitment to equality and social justice, perhaps of any people ever in the history of the world. Uh, I know, I've taught at institutions where this is widely uh, extolled as the basic and core commitment of these institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so while there's a lot of self-congratulation of the egalitarian uh, leanings and commitments of people who are going to benefit from this anti-culture, they are in fact complicit, it seems to me, in creating the conditions in which so many of our fellow countrymen are experiencing sort of catastrophic, not just economic, but social conditions. Mm -hmm. and, and what's striking to me is an entire, is an almost an entire absence of any real discussion of this in our elite institutions. Right. And in fact, I would say, especially with the election of Trump, you're more likely to find people uh, who regard such flyover country folks as in some ways deserving their fate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of a friend of mine, and uh, he does another podcast, so if he's listening, he'll know I'm talking about him, uh, who lived in the beach suburbs of Los Angeles for a number of years and often boasted on his show about how, you know, no birthday party that he ever that his kids ever went to was 40% any ethnicity and that on his block were six different religions. Uh, now, to his credit, here recently he's recognized, yeah, but the common ground is everyone on his block could, could afford to live in the beach suburbs of L.A. Uh, I, so I, I, I do, I mean, you know, and again, my own brother lives in Los Angeles and, you know, uh, I am flyover country, as you call it. Um, yeah, That's not what I call it. That's what my colleagues who taught at Princeton called it. Oh, I know, I know. I, I know. Like I said, I, I, live, in, I live in flyover country now. Oh, I, I, as do I. I. I grew up in the suburbs of Indianapolis, so I know, I know the place well. <laughs> um, but it is curious. I mean, the the assertion, I guess, that you know, meritocracy might not be uh, the sort of goal of history. The you know what we're all striving for. I mean, that is its own kind of heresy now. I mean, have you heard that kind of response? Well, uh, it seems to me that actually I think uh, there's there's a more and more widespread sense that um, this meritocratic order is um, is pretty has a lot of pernicious qualities to it. Uh, mm. And it, and and, and I, even many of my students recognize it. They find themselves sort of trapped uh, that they don't have a choice 
uh, but to be a part of it because if they're not winners, they're going to be losers. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, but they're aware of this kind of, you know, deeply um, they're conflicted uh, because they recognize that they are now complicit in a system that is sort of telling them that they should care about the condition of those who aren't advantaged in the system. And yet they feel like they have no choice but to participate in the ever greater differentiation. And I, and, and this is the way in which I think um, the emphasis and indeed the kind of constant and incessant insistence on our egalitarianism and commitments to social justice is used as a kind of a cover, a kind of self-deception. I just finished an article that will appear in a forthcoming issue of the journal First Things, once again, to return to Plato, in which I call this a new form of the noble lie, in yeah. which it's the elite of our society that have come to believe that they, uh, um, that they in fact, are not unequal, that they are egalitarians, uh, and that uh, their condition or position is really one uh, that is, um, is not in some ways contributing to uh, the condition of many of their countrymen. So the deception in some ways is now a self-deception of the elites rather than the kind of deception of those who are going to be in the underclass, strikingly enough. And what we now also see is that the underclass as such no longer believes it, no longer believes in the noble line. Uh, and what we're seeing around the, the world in the form of what's now described as populism uh, is a is a rejection and a and a um, uh, an acting out against uh, this set of arrangements that many people have concluded are really going to permanently disadvantage them and their children, uh, and the kind of now confusion and even uh, fury and indignation of those who are in the elite class that someone should sort of upset the apple cart with their uh, populist demands. Mm-hmm. Well, with that bleak picture, uh, I know that one charge that, you know, Rod Dreher has faced, and I'm sure your book has faced already, although I haven't looked at a lot of the reviews, I intentionally avoided them before this interview, uh, is that you are trying to go back to some reconstructed pre-liberal social order. I want to note that early in the book, and then repeated throughout the thing, uh, you say that there is no going back. Why is that an important claim to make in a book like this one? Uh, no, in fact, if you do read the if you do read the reviews, it's interesting. Uh, probably the the standing accusation is that on the one hand, I say that the liberal order has failed, uh, but I offer no real prescription for what's going to follow it. Um, mm -hmm. In other words, I don't have a sort of ready-made system uh, ready to sort of set up in its place. And so, in some ways, I would say many of my readers accept my claim that I that I believe that there's only going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, that I'm not sort of saying that we need to go back to 1429 or 1637, that I'm not sort of looking to some point in the past. But I, I mean that for another reason as well, which is that, um, again, I'm a political theorist by trade. Uh, the, the liberal order it is, was and is appealing to something genuine and a genuine longing of human beings. It didn't, it didn't come into existence merely because the rich and powerful foisted its ideas on those who were unknowing uh, and unsuspecting. And I would say in some ways it's, it derived from the very things that, of course, also made Christianity so such a powerful message, the inherent dignity of every human being, the inherent equality of every human being in the eyes of God, uh, the belief that we are free in some deep sense, that we're not 
bound uh, by some definition of our societies. Now, that might mean if you're a slave, you still would understand yourself to be free uh, as a child of God, but that, that, that longing for freedom manifested itself politically. Now, all of that I want to say is we have to pay that respect uh, and understanding and not simply say, oh, this was a terrible mistake and we have to go back from it. But we have to, in some ways, while recognizing it, um, move on from it while um, building, not simply just rejecting, but building. In the way you could say that liberalism was itself building on many of the achievements of Christianity, uh, that Christianity uh, also was in some senses rejected, even while aspects were incorporated. I think a post-liberalism will incorporate some aspects of liberalism. I would not like to see us go back to chattel slavery, for instance. Uh, I would not like to see us go back to a time in which women uh, had no place in the public sphere. Uh, notwithstanding some accusations that have been leveled against me. Uh, but at the same time, how does one build while also um, uh, beginning to reconstruct and potentially um, leaving out or redefining some of, for example, redefining the understanding of liberty, uh, moving away from that liberal, seems to me, the liberal understanding of liberty that has led us down a kind of dead end. So in that sense, I mean we have a constructive project ahead of us. And to those who are frustrated that I don't have a ready-made political project, I would simply say liberalism was a 500-year project. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been multi-generational. And if, if there's agreement that my diagnosis is correct, then I would merely be one of what will be, I think, many, many people who will begin a process of thinking through what comes next. But to accuse me of not in some ways – uh, adequately offering, you know, the, what comes next as a kind of indictment of my argument is to is to suggest again a kind of um, an unrealistic view of of how sort of political change occurs in the, in the deepest sense and in the most sort of long term sense. Mm -hmm. I, I I just would also add I do at the end of the book I do have an endorsement of Rod Dreyer's uh, an aspect of Rod's argument which and I think Rod would agree with this that. He's talking about a strategy. This is not the sort of the end condition that we're all going to be in our sort of strategically withdrawn communities. His is rather that there needs to be a kind of process of building. And I, I, I end the book by saying for those who want to know what we can do now and aren't ready to wait 500 years for the next political philosophy, um, it seems to me that there's a project of building that needs to take place in the here and now, especially the building of culture, the building of local practices and traditions and an appreciation of place and history and being in time. And that's something that we can do right now. Um, but it does require a kind of conscious um, distancing from the norms of liberal society. And that's an important first step, that conscious distancing. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting is when you do start to turn towards what comes next, and again, I, had, I hadn't read those reviews, so I didn't know that was the big critique, but uh, you start to call for, as you said, you know, some building of local communities with a, a distinctively democratic mold to them. I mean, in the old Athenian sense of democratic, uh, I'll admit that that surprised me a little bit, uh, you know, because a lot of people who, you know, cry for democracy now, uh, you know, do so along with that radio program with a very liberal project in mind. 
so talk to our listeners a little bit. I mean, how would this localized democratic society differ from the liberalism that you see in America as a national anti-cultural project? Right. So when I when I conclude the book by recommending a kind a different kind of democracy, um, I'm certainly I think differing from uh, what you're describing as the kind of activist democracy. Uh, I, I suspect that that what you're describing there, those people would be the first to condemn what what they would probably call populism. And I do find it always intriguing that the people who who often speak loudest in defense of democracy are the quickest to denounce when people actually act uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in a democratic process for ends that differ. And then I think what's revealed is that when people say, often will often say democracy, they have something quite substantive in mind uh, that, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, is not terribly, de- often not terribly democratic. I'm the thinker. Uh, we've talked a lot about Plato, but the thinker I think who looms largest over my book is Alexis de Tocqueville, yep. uh, whose uh, uh, eight, 19, early 19th century book *Democracy in America* I think provides a lot of really the the basic architecture of the of the argument that I'm making here. Um, and Tocqueville, when Tocqueville speaks of democracy, he speaks of it as a kind of um, a, um, a set of practices and a kind of almost way of life that democracy isn't just an occasional thing where you get up and you go to a voting booth and you vote. Democracy is a kind of an ongoing form of relationship with your neighbors and the people in your community to make decisions about your common common life and the fate that you share together as human beings in a place. So that democracy is the, you know, we talked earlier about Plato's Republic and the need to govern one's lowest appetites. Well, democracy, I would say, in this sense, and it's an idealized sense, but democracy is when we do that thing politically, when we learn to govern ourselves, not as individuals, but we govern ourselves together as a community. So I do have, a, I guess, a fairly idealized understanding of democracy, but democracy is, is a kind of learning, a training in self-governance. And when Tocqueville comes to America in the 1830s, He's stunned, especially when he travels through New England. He's stunned by what he sees as these practices of small-town New England democracy in which people are governing themselves. It's something he had never seen in his native aristocratic France. And he says he's, he's absolutely stunned that when there's a problem, when a problem arises in the community, that people come together and through this kind of democratic practices, they arrive at a solution. They don't wait for the government to come and to solve the problem that they would do in France. They come together and they make a decision and they resolve what they're going to do and they solve that problem together. Mm -hmm. So when I end the book suggesting that liberalism undermines democracy, this is exactly what I mean, that liberalism undermines our ability not only to be self-governing, to govern our appetites, but it undermines our ability to be politically self-governing and why it is that in, in liberal societies, more and more of the activities of our lives becomes governed by a distant government by a distant entity that now orders our lives, and that makes us feel powerless. In a Mm -hmm. democracy, we should feel empowered, and we should feel as if we ourselves are governing, governing each other and governing ourselves. Uh, So I think in many ways, we have very much the opposite of a democratic society. We use that word promiscuously, uh, but we have very much the opposite. And what we're seeing now is a kind of enactment of discontent with that powerlessness 
that has the danger of taking a very anti-democratic turn and a kind of authoritarian turn. And I would simply say to those who are defending the liberal order, David Brooks among them, that if they genuinely fear an authoritarian turn in our politics, uh, that they should be in the forefront of promoting these forms of democratic self-governance. Very good. I've got to ask one question because it's been bothering me since I looked at your book's cover. How in the world did you get Cornell West to blurb this book? <laughs> I, I, I didn't ask Cornell, uh, but um, you know, Cornell is a Cornell is a, I think a deeply honest man of the left. Uh, that he uh, he's been in the forefront of critiquing uh, Barack Obama as essentially an oligarch, uh, and has been deeply critical of what he sees are the shortcomings of the political left. It doesn't mean he's a man of the right. But that said, you know, his one of his best friends uh, and frequent uh, speaking partner is Robert George, the great mm-hmm. conservative at Princeton University. And I think Robbie George would be the first person to tell you that Cornell West is his own man. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I take it he read my book and he saw enough there that he thought uh, uh, he shared uh, in his in his worries and concerns about the contemporary age. And I, and I should say that I hope that many people who read my book won't simply be conservatives or Christians conservative Christians, that I hope many people on the left will read my book. And it was written, I hope, to, pe- to appeal to people across the political spectrum as an effort to be not just critical and to write a Jeremiah, but also as an invitation to try to build something to move beyond what I think are our false political divides and to build something better after liberalism. Very good. I have to admit, when I uh, finished each chapter and was making my notes, I kept looking at the back cover, make sure that was still there. I you know, didn't imagine it. I... <laughs> well, I'm not sure how closely you read it either. But... <laughs> well, Patrick, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. As we head for the door, what do you want our listeners thinking about political thought, liberalism, civic virtue, or whatever else? Well, your program is called a, is it Christian Humanist uh, Yes, podcast? indeed. Uh, and so I, assuming you have a, a mostly a Christian listenership, I, I do think that there is a special task, uh, a very special task for Christians uh, in our condition. Uh, and it's one I think it's going to be a challenge because Christians have been among the most patriotic supporters of the American project. You could say they've been the most passionate supporters of the liberal project. And, you know, to a great extent, liberalism and Christianity have some resemblances. But to the extent that we see the, those resemblances diverging, Uh, and liberalism sort of revealing its true self, I think we have to understand that Christianity is not the same thing as liberalism. And to be a Christian is not the same thing increasingly of what it is now to be what's considered to be a good liberal American. So Christians, it seems to me, have a special responsibility in writing this ship of state. Uh, In the first instance, by um, living and wherever possible, uh, um, teaching the true definition of liberty, Christian idea of liberty. You mentioned St. Paul and his understanding of what it is to be a slave and a free person, of living that out in their lives and their practices and through their example, of offering an alternative to a desiccated spiritual landscape where so many people are going to be looking for something. Uh, and if it's not going to be uh, in the end of a, an opium pipe or, uh, or at the end of a cell phone distracting themselves, I would hope that the example of those who are living joyfully in a different kind of freedom uh, will be an inspiration to our countrymen and make a, a better form of liberty after liberalism. Patrick Deneen, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. 
Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. Christian Humanist Profiles is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.